0: seasons greetings everyone this is illiterate my name is evan my name is taylor i read a book this week i watched a movie this week we are covering one of the best christmas movies i've ever watched die hard i know it's not a hot new release But it is hot right now. I've been seeing a lot of conversations about it. And and generally, anytime we get to this time of the year, it tends to come up. And you know what? I had never seen this film before. And so we were approaching the Christmas season. And it's based on a book. You would never know. I thought, what an incredible opportunity to widen the lens on this. Let's give the context here. What is Die Hard? Where did it come from? Who's responsible? Oh, my God. It's based on a book. Come along. I'm excited. Taylor. The ultimate question, is it a Christmas movie? There was a
1: survey by The Hollywood Reporter. A quarter of Americans say it's a Christmas film. Hmm. So we have to go straight to the source. In 2018, Fox, they said it was the greatest Christmas story ever told. They made a great trailer in-house. Oh, man. Like a uh, Hallmark kind of rom com <laughs> So they think it is, obviously, yeah. for the marketing. Bruce Willis notoriously had said it was not in an interview. <gasps> No, (laughs) the the writer, Stephen D'Souza said in a recent interview just a couple of days ago, it was, but of course he said it humorously. I'll post a link to the interview, but he had a Christmas movie checklist comparing it to white Christmas Oh, uh, and has just kind of all of these funny comparisons between the two, specifically the body count because 23 people die and die hard. But white Christmas, the opening scene takes place in the battle of the bulge in World War II. So he's like, well, that has a body count of 26,000. Oh my so if you're God. talking about, well, just in the context of like off screen, that's how many people of die. No, no I know, I, I don't, I get you. That is, that's hilarious. So he's, so I'll post a link to that. He's got all these wacky comparisons between the two. And if you want to call this a Christmas movie, well, then you should call Die Hard a Christmas
0: movie as well. I mean, I'm looking at it as like, well, is Christmas central to the jump off here? I mean. This is a beefy movie, so I don't know how spoilery this is, but if you don't know, Die Hard is about a a beat cop from New York who's flying across the country to L.A. so that he can go to the Christmas party in this posh new uprise scale building that his now kind of uh, seemingly estranged wife. Has gotten a new job in, um, so right off the bat we're with him in uh, on the plane where we get the idea that his marriage is a bit off the rocks and he's going in and just trying to get back with her. We're going to see the kids, and that's where we are. We're just getting to know him. We're on a plane. We're going to a Christmas party. He's got a big dumb bear, and and that's <laughs> that's the setup for this movie. And it takes off from there. But I would say that the catalyst from this, I mean, it's inherently Christmas. He's flying across the country for a Christmas party to see his kids for Christmas. Uh, yeah, Christmas is really really. Right in there. <laughs>
1: Which you don't expect with an action movie. Right.
0: And and it's not playing you like it's an action, you know, he's not like on a helicopter landing on a base going like I'm going to see my kids. You know, like that's that this is not, this is just a guy on an airplane, and then somebody, another passenger sees his gun. He goes, No, nah, I'm a cop. It's all right. Right. And it was also 88. So <laughs> <laughs> you could have a gun. Yeah. Very uh
1: dated. So let's talk about the <laughs> book and where this comes from and how it's actually a sequel to, to another thing that got adapted. The book is called Nothing Lasts Forever, which speaks to the darker- That's a great title. <laughs> it sounds like the 80s also, but it-, it Sounds the like book James Bond. Has a much darker tone than the movie we know as Die Hard. Hmm. The book came out in 79. Roderick Thorpe is the guy's name. He had written another novel in 66 called The Detective, and this is utilizing the same character, and he references what happened in the book The Detective. So it is a true blue sequel, um, which the film then changes around quite a few things, but leaves a lot of the the pieces. The book was actually, I got a copy of it, but it was out of print until 2013, and then they re-released it for Die Hard's 25th anniversary.
0: Oh, special. Okay. I I like that. I like that.
1: The author, Roderick Thorpe, was a former police officer, and he worked at a detective agency owned by his father. So he knows this world. Oh, I see. The book, The Detective, that came out in 66, actually got turned into a film in 68, starring Frank Sinatra. Oh, blue eyes. (laughs) It was billed as this adult approach to a working police detective and so, so he's
0: playing John McClane?
1: Well, yeah, the character name is Joe Leland, Joe uh, Leland. But it yeah, they change it for for Die Hard, but he's a private investigator checking out this case. There's a suicide victim that comes later and you realize there's corruption and there's more murder and there's ties to his military it's past in the
0: breadcrumbs, yeah.
1: It's all it's very noir, Unraveling. it's the detective. But the the interesting thing about it was it was one of the first times in mainstream cinema that the subject of homosexuality was a mm. crucial part of and was treated with at least for the time some layer of nuance or Credence, that's interesting. In yeah, 68. yeah, because the the first man who's murdered in this web of intrigue is gay, and then they find his live-in lover who confesses, but then it runs deeper than he oh, thinks wow. into his past. So, and then of course another well, thing that's like way and,
0: more realer than anyone was trying to be in sixty-eight. Right, <laughs> that's <laughs> right. amazing. Right,
1: I mean, it literally it came out a year before the Stonewall riots, so it was that's amazing presenting something.
0: Yeah, wow, um, that, that's a, that is real. That, that's that might be significant only being a year before. That's pre- that's pretty incredible. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I would assume the gay community would be wildly aware of that after it was out. I mean, yeah. that just because it just doesn't happen. And
1: I'll post a link. I saw a review from a queer blog where they were saying, yes, obviously, in the context of the time, <laughs> it isn't quite as... Praising of things, but sure. In, in the context of it, it's like it's still a good film, and for what it was and what it was doing,
0: sure. And and, and, and to put it in context, it's 1968. I mean, the fact that it's on screen and presented period is progress. So you that it's it's so annoying, but it's stepping towards it. <laughs> you're still always stepping towards it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it looks archaic to now, but to even put the I'm I'm shocked that that was uh, a central part of a. Story so yeah, to the so that's record. the original John.
1: That's the original John McClane as this detective. So then as far as the actual book, Nothing Lasts Forever, that follows it, what is different and what is the same? It is a much darker book. It's following in this tradition more of a noir, um, Mm -hmm. but basically all the famous action sequences that appear in the film come from the book where he's crawling through the air conditioning ducts. He drops a bomb down the elevator shaft. He's jumping off of the exploding roof with a fire hose attached to him and then shooting through the window. Of course, the climax where he tapes his the gun to his back, him being barefoot the whole time because of a uh, trick about removing jet lag. That's all there.
0: Oh my gosh, that's I mean, much more than I was even even anticipating. Because um, yeah. I know, as you had said briefly, because we don't talk about everything before we do this. I was expecting a couple a couple hits of them. Like, okay, they brought that. They brought that. Okay, cool. That's much more than I would have really uh, assumed, especially mm-hmm. for that. And that's the sequel book in seventy. The sequel book in seventy nine. Yeah, seventy nine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So the other thing that's I guess different
1: and happens in literature is the novel is from Joe Leland or John McClain's perspective. Mm-hmm. So there is no cutting to different events, and you get a lot of the backstory from his thoughts and whatnot, which obviously don't translate. But he's right, right, right. he's also more cynical. The events are harsher. So he is an older character. And the big change is Holly in the movie, who is Stephanie in the book, is his daughter who he's going to see. And she oh. invited him because she misses him. But he is this old alcoholic who has an ex-wife who died and you know he's got grandkids. Ah,
0: um, okay. And see, that's making sense to me here thematically why they would shift just a little bit uh, for the film, because in the film, he's going to meet up with his estranged wife, who's suddenly now going by her maiden name and not his name, right. even though they're not divorced, and with the seeing the kids tonight, maybe going over to the house and sleeping and seeing the kids right, right. is on the table. And so you're right there, the stakes are on the table, you're right there with John McClane, you want him You want him to see his kids. That's really what this is all kind of about. So th- thematically, if you're translating this into a screenplay, up onto the screen, it makes sense to start to shift that a little bit around. If this is not quite the dark, if if he's going to end up with her at the end, she has to be alive. So, right. you know, so we bring her in, and the whole thing is about they get separated while she goes off to make a speech, his shoes are off, and he's in, he's got his shirt off because he's great because he's jet lagged, and then everything starts to happen. So they don't see each other this entire time. By the time they get back together, he's been through complete hell and yeah. like, like a completely different person.
1: Well also with the book Stephanie the daughter she is it, it, tying into the noir everything's terrible she's sort of a lost cause in the sense of like the company that they're working for it's actually terrorists who are trying to stop the thing they're doing in South America mm-hmm. its company investing in the Chilean government conspiracy etc whereas in the movie they're pretending to be terrorists and they're just really it's good. All the rudes. Yes, yes. yes, yes, they're yes. trying to This is her, actually, oh, society's terrible. My daughter is involved in all this crazy criminal activity or potential criminal activity, etc. And so at the end of the book, Gruber falls off in the same way, but he still holds on to her and his daughter goes with him. So they both die, the main villain and his daughter.
0: Oh my god. At the end of
1: the book. And then so then Leland the John McClane character goes on a rampage, killing the rest of the terrorists, gets outside, and the police captain gets shot by Carl. No, (laughs) yeah, no,
0: it's (laughs) the direct opposite.
1: I know, it (laughs) flips the other way. And Leland is injured and sad, and it's like, is he gonna make it in the hospital? Like, it just is a horrible, depressing ending, hence the title, Nothing Lasts Forever. And it's just like, it's the end of this policeman detective's career what has it cost him in his life you know that kind
0: of thing. All I'm thinking about right now is I'm, I'm just my lights are going off because in a couple episodes ago we talked about uh, adapting Jurassic Park from the novel to the screenplay and how amazing that is and I'm getting those vibes right here and there because they're making very specific thematic choices about the difference of what they're trying to say this is this is really this they're really uh, they're really cooking with gas here <laughs> they're not letting this just fly all over the place and they're not just going off on their own either they're look it's direct directly opposing what's in the book for specific mm-hmm. reasons. Well, uh, yeah, so let's talk really about smart.
1: let's talk about the adaptation process here and who wrote it and and, and all that yeah. because it's one of those weird paradoxes right. of like, well, they didn't really know like it looks like oh, of course you do this, but it only looks like that because it worked. Right. <laughs> but right. Here's how <laughs> all those yeah. pieces actually got switched around. And just as some context, so like, for example, the original Rambo film First Blood was based on a book, First Blood. Like this is a trend of the 80s. Right. What is the skeleton yes. of a yes. of an action story that we can use and then turn into something else? So this is 1988, is when the film comes out, which is nine years after the book is released. So it's already been bought to be adapted wow. yes, as yes. something in this lump time period of this being popular. And the director, John McTiernan, did Predator the year before. And then he did Hunt for Red October two years after. So this is his wheelhouse. But the writer, Jeb Stewart. So what was going on with him, which is a whirlwind experience? He was young, had a wife who was having her second child, needed money. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. he he did have a deal with Disney. But I don't think he was getting paid for it yet. Or it was like he had a six-week period where he could complete work for another studio. So think about that. Like I have six weeks where I need to make some money doing something. Right. And it's got to be done by then. Oh (laughs) my gosh. A lot of like scripts take years to write sometimes.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, taking on a screenplay is not just some like, oh, this is going to be fun. I'll be over with it in like a few weeks or a month or two. It's like, honestly, I mean, it can take years and years and years to do it right. It's a massive undertaking, whether it's a completely original thought or you're adapting or using something based on real life. It's yep. it's a massive undertaking. So the agent that he has hooks him up with
1: the producing arm of Fox Studios and says, we got this book. We made the predecessor, the detective, take a crack at it. We're pitching it sort of as Rambo in an office building. What do you think? So now here he goes trying to figure out how he's going to adapt this. Because as I've said, the book is about this 60-year-old man who visits his daughter who has corrupt business dealings and then right. she falls off a building. Like <laughs> it's a... At the outset, that doesn't sound like something that he could really sink his teeth into. (laughs) A real upper. Right. (laughs) So I saw uh, an interview. He was talking, and he had a commute from Pasadena to Burbank and then worked basically 18 hours a day there because, like I said, he was Uh still doing his Disney thing and felt on edge the whole time, was having arguments with his wife. So he storms out one day. In the six weeks he has to finish this thing and goes for a drive and he's driving on the freeway and there's a truck with boxes full of appliances, fridges and dishwashers and stuff. And it hits something and one of the fridge boxes goes flying and he has no time to maneuver out. And so it just smashes into his car while he's going 65 miles an hour down the freeway. The box was empty. And so it just hit off and went off his car, but he swerved off to the side. And it was like a crazy oh. near-death experience. It's like, oh, I would oh be dead God, immediately. immediately. Argued, <laughs> uh, Yeah. And I argued with my wife 20 minutes before and just stormed out. So he got home, immediately reconciled with his wife and wrote 35 pages that night. Wow. Because he realized, he's like, it's not about a 60-year-old man you know, his daughter falling off a building, but it's about this 30-year-old who should have said he's sorry to his wife and then yes. something bad
0: happens. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm so glad you put that up because I thought what an amazing moment it was. And I said that the couple are having a, a, a bit of a conversational argument and then they split up. She goes to make a speech and then the terrorists hit the room. But right before the terrorists hit the room, you get a moment with uh, McLean in the bathroom and he's really taking it out on himself. It's like, why didn't I just say sorry? Really mature, John. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, well, incredible. For this to be such a manly movie, it's such a beautiful human moment hidden in the middle of a movie that I think people just assume is just some action movie. Yeah. And And, crazy
1: that it came from this guy Jeb's life in the the six weeks that he had to figure out what this was about. It's like, oh no, this is about, this is personal. And we find that time and again, that it has to come from something Yes, yes, that he experienced. So he has no experience writing action films. But his wheelhouse is more thrillers. And so this is where we get the twist, I suppose, of the action genre, which we'll talk about Mm. at the end. Mm -hmm. But he focuses more on the characters and their reconciliation, building to that, not building to an action piece. Right. Because he knows that thrillers is more about the characters and the psychology and things as opposed to action films. Right. So that's his pass on the script. He finishes it in, in five and a half weeks, delivers it on Friday in 1987 goes on vacation for the weekend comes back voicemail box lit up because they green lit it on Saturday whoa and said we, we got to do it because he's like, this is just the perfect serendipity of luck and my timing because Fox needed a big summer film for 1988. They didn't have one in the pipeline. This is the yeah. one that got done that he got done in time because he oh had to God. go. He was contractually obligated to do the next thing. So they were like, sure, let's do it. Well, it let's, seems you know.
0: and right there at that moment, you have uh, John McTiernan coming off of Predator 1987, a massive, massive, massive hit. And as you were saying with the writer, John McTiernan would describe himself as kind of of a savant, somebody who got into the industry and got pegged as like, oh, I'm I'm in for cars and guns and and action, 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 so that he could get the job while in all reality he was a true artist and really cared about people, was a real director. Mm -hmm. This is the smartness of uh, John McTiernan because he hasn't, I'm seeing, because I've just watched this movie for the first time, but Predator is a a lifelong diehard favorite, diehard, diehard favorite of mine that I have known since, I have been, I've been studying since I was Conscious and knowing him, uh, and knowing that his affinity for looking for work that turns, that says it's one thing to get you invested and then takes you a completely different direction. That's predator. Predator starts as a Arnold Schwarzenegger military movie. We're going into Cambodia. We're going to get these hostages bouncing across the border before anybody knows we were there. And then you get there, 50 minutes in the movie, the team you thought was unstoppable is ripped apart and there's an alien hunting them down. (laughs) It's a completely different movie. It's a horror movie through and through. That's bold. That's crazy. And I think I'm seeing the same taste for material with Die Hard. That makes total sense. He turns in Predator. What else you got? This comes out. Oh, Oh, it's just an action movie, but look, this is a real character. And there's a real human drama at the center of this about a family and about a husband and wife. And regret um, and everything else, yeah. And it completely takes you off on this other, on this crazy, crazy, crazy movie-worthy adventure. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the production process here. Because now,
1: like you said, it is a character-based piece disguised as an action movie, they already made a movie with this character. Fox did. (laughs) And this is technically based on the sequel book. And so as a part of the obligations of that, the person that was this character is contractually obligated to perform. That was Frank Sinatra. But the character before was, like I said, older. So Frank Sinatra is 73 now and does not fit (laughs) the material at all. But they had to offer it to him.
0: Just imagine it for five seconds. Imagine the movie is exactly the same, but there's a 73-year-old Frank Sinatra trying to like really convince the audience that this is his wife. Yeah. Is...
1: He's smart and declined, but it's like he yeah, could have said yes, and then they would have had to figure out how to make it with him. Oh, god. But he said, he said no. How so gracious. That, yeah. <laughs> They're trying to get everybody that's anybody in the action game. They
0: offered it to Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course. But it's interesting because they mentioned it, it to him too, which I think is so funny. They meant they, I, I think at one point McLean is talking to him. So I was like, I feel like Arnold in some crazy action movie, <laughs> which which John McTiernan had just directed, right? <laughs> but
1: Arnold is trying to break into comedy, doing the opposite of what people are doing. Where so Twins comes out the same year as Die oh, Hard, yes. so this oh, is why man. he's not interested in this. But they hit up everybody. They hit up Sylvester, Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Paul Newman. Nobody wanted to do it, mm. and. Willis, who they ended up getting, is known for TV at the time. So this is his first big break. He's yeah, not this an is it. This
0: program. is why he is who he is, right? Yeah.
1: yeah, exactly. He The only thing he was in before was a film that did terrible that nobody remembers and a rom coms TV series called Moonlighting. And that's what he was mm-hmm. doing when they got him for this. Oh, man. But And also, there was a very clear distinction
0: between film and TV actors at the time. So you would get if you got a TV actor much much more so than now that 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 road has been completely conflated. They blur all the time in in, in one side out the other. That was so, so, Mm -hmm. so different. Uh, That was so different in the 80s. Yeah. And if you got a TV actor, it'd be like, oh, well, so is this a TV movie? Like, is this the quality? It was a very different people thought the exact same thing about uh, Back to the Future with Michael J. Fox because he mm. was on TV at the, at the time too. And that became such a scheduling conflict with him too. But that, right. that, that wasn't a good thi- seen as like a, a great thing at the time just by general audiences and the general uh, upper estrelance of the studios. Right. So speaking
1: of the scheduling stuff, this moonlighting show he's doing, the, his co-star Sybil Shepard became pregnant. So they shut down production for 11 weeks so he can do this movie. So he's like, sure. Wow. And they the, the whole big scuttlebutt at the time was they gave him $5 million, which was unheard of at the time. The closest that people got, Dustin Hoffman got. Something for Tootsie Robert Redford did like big movie stars, big, big movie stars that had been movie stars for a while were getting close to that or they were getting three million. But how is this guy
0: this? Yeah, they offer uh, this TV actor who has no other credits to his name more than any of that. Right. And so the reason. A hell of an audition. <laughs> well, they said, I, I had
1: seen a, a cynical approach to it. And it's like, if it doesn't work, then that's what justifies it. So we can say, oh, well, this is where it all went. And and it's his fault kind of thing. Like oh they could God. put it on somebody else. What but if it a does.
0: Strategy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They were setting him up to just, yeah, it was his fault. It wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> and God, we oh. paid him way too much. Why do- but, but they needed
1: something also to get in the headlines for it. And they needed something. But of course, people in the industry hated it Because it's like, well, if this random guy is getting, it, you know, Dustin Hoffman has to get seven million the next time. Oh man! So that's uh, maybe also in terms of legacy. This is the start of this forever escalating. Robert Downey Jr. getting paid thirty million. You know? Oh, interesting. It became an
0: arms race of what star is going to get paid when somebody breaks the line, and then everybody's feeling hurt. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I got to keep raising the bar. So this was was endless progress, (laughs) (laughs) right?
1: (laughs) Blame Die Hard for it. (laughs) <laughs> and then also Alan Rickman, who is the villain. He had never been in a movie before. This is his first film. Oh my gosh, I, had, I didn't even realize that. The, one of the casting directors had seen him as a villain in a Broadway show. He was oh, doing mostly man. theater, and they said, well, you should do this. So then, of course, this, he's iconically known. Also, because the book is only from the main character's perspective, there's a lot that we don't know about the villain. You only get him from the radio. But in the movie, of course, they can. Very interesting, because as
0: we were watching it, we were appreciating the discovery of the plot I think that's key to keeping interest here about what's going on, is because we don't know what's happening, and mm-hmm. we're discovering it along the way. Whether it comes down to the to the terrorists, to the to the hostages, to the mm-hmm. police, to uh, McLean himself, his wife, all everybody is giving a, a, each has a little piece to add to the pot to tell you more about what's going on, and it keeps turning and mm-hmm. it keeps turning. And so the market, I mean, so I think it's a, I think it's a really brilliant screenplay. I mean, and I where, can't understate that enough. So where some of that comes from now, there's a rewrite being done, and this is the
1: person I mentioned before. Who was talking sillily about how it's Christmassy is uh, Steven D'Souza. And he comes on to do a rewrite of it. And he had prior experience with action and comedy. So this is where that layer of the screenplay comes in. Yes. And a yes, thing that he had said in an interview that I saw, he had approached the story as if Gruber, the villain, was the protagonist, which is always a great way to think of things. It's like, how is he driving the narrative? What would happen if he wasn't there? well, then they would just get together and maybe he would recon- reconcile with his wife or not. But then this creates all of that. So right, he, he added a lot of depth in terms of that character. And this is sort of a renegade trying to get it cobbled together, random TV actor who does rom-coms thing. So it wasn't... Uh, this high, you know, high budget I mean, legacy production. So the, the big witnessing
0: thing... witnessing a breakout on screen. I mean, and that's what it really uh, yeah. amounts to because when this movie starts, he's that TV character. You think you know, okay, he's just a dude. He's just a guy. He's just a cop. And over the course of two hours, he becomes an action superstar. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's believable in these types of movies. And when I say these types of movies, this is kind of what we're trying to point out, is that this kind of set what action movies were going to be henceforth. And we it gets judged based on what we think of an action movie now, Third years later at the time no this this is really staking a new claim and it has a lot beneath the surface that mm-hmm. i mean i'm looking at the poster right now and you'd never know it's a, it's a christmas movie but it, but it really really it really is what a crazy mm-hmm. thing but i i'm i'm loving the osm just the osmosis of the creativity here it's from mm-hmm. this book frank sinatra mm-hmm. we got this character i mean it's it, this is really this is really alive some of the cornucopia of ideas
1: and hodgepodge that gets put together with it all. Willis was still on Moonlighting, that TV show, even though they were on a break, that he he still was filming it for the first week when they were filming Die Hard, so he would show up at the Moonlighting set, film for up to 10 hours and then film Die Hard at night. Wow. So oh a lot God. of the in the writing side of things, they were like we got to give him some sort of a break, and so we have to film some things that don't involve him. And give him some days off so he can sleep. So that's where you get a lot of the stuff with the wife or with Gruber or with these other characters the is kind of like, becomes a major yeah, character. Yeah, the exactly. one that
0: first rolls up in the police car and they get shot up and then he becomes the, the main like mm-hmm. link to McLean up in the building uh, with the C B yeah. radio, who you and then he ends up being influential at the end, which he's they flop the, directly.
1: He's in the book a little bit, and but even the uh the limo driver who ends up
0: being a big piece of it disappears after the first scene of the book. And he gets more- yeah. And I'm so happy that, and that, and that goes to show you what a smart screenplay that is, because that was a disposable piece in the novel, mm-hmm. not in a movie. You can't do that with a movie. You don't have, you have a, such a limited amount of time and you have so little time to actually get people's attention. I knew from the moment I saw what they were doing with this driver that he's going to be influential by the end of <laughs> it. And I was starting to wonder by midway, I was like, is he going to come <laughs> back? And it was like, oh, we haven't cut back to him in a minute, but he does. And he comes, and we knew it. Me and my fiance both were like, we cannot wait to see this driver save the day. And he absolutely yeah does just because we know that that's what's got to happen based on what we're being presented in the story.
1: But like I said, a lot of this stuff was happening because of a technical or a logistical thing with Bruce Willis. Like the ending was not finalized when
0: enabling constraints. That's all I can say. When
1: when the film had begun, they didn't know how it was going to end. And they had filmed things that were going to mess with the continuity before. So they were like trying. It was all a hodgepodge when they were filming it. And the actors were given room to improvise lines or like Just like lots of logistical stuff that was all twisted around. One of which being they filmed at the Fox Plaza because it was available and it was Fox and it was their building that they were building. And it was mostly unoccupied because they hadn't built it all yet. Right, It It got occupied in 88 when the when the movie came out, it's only five stories were occupied. And then like the construction sites were literally construction sites. They didn't, it was as real as it could be. But the big stipulation that they had for themselves was that they couldn't film during the day, which is perfect because it all takes place in one night. Oh,
0: beautiful. Oh my gosh. And
1: Bruce Willis (laughs) could not be there during the day. So beautiful. Oh, it all fits together. together. How perfect. Yeah. And uh, the other thing with the, in terms of just keeping things together, Willis did most of his stunts. So did Alan Rickman, the famous thing where he drops off the classic villain falling off the edge. He did that stunt and they dropped him between 20 and 70 feet onto a big airbag kind of thing. And I had seen in an interview, they had said, okay, we're going to drop you on three, one, two, and then dropped him to get the the, the shot. Got him.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. My fiance told me as that was happening, he's like, this is famous. This is the moment. <laughs> was like, this right here. So, so as I savored the look, it's pretty amazing. It is pretty, it is pretty amazing to get that real, like the eyes widening. They mm-hmm. almost just can't, you almost can't fake it.
1: <laughs> but now we have the release of this thing. And just for some context. So this is sequel heaven. This same year, Crocodile Dundee 2 is coming out. Rambo 3 is coming out in May. <laughs> We have a film called Red Heat with Arnold, even though he's doing Twins, huh. the comedy one. And then Clint Eastwood. Found time for that, <laughs> yeah. Clint Eastwood's fifth Dirty Harry film is also coming out. So th- this is the summer slate.
0: Where in the world does Die Hard fit Man, in? I can I'm time. thinking about that casting, and I'm just going like, No, I don't want Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> I don't want Arnold. But I'm not. It's not human. Mm -hmm. And how amazing that you both, this movie is a breakout for both Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. How incredible. (laughs) But you look at the, uh, the metrics of what was going on at the time and Bruce
1: Willis, just because of public sentiment and how he was presenting himself was perceived as arrogant. And he sort of in the public eye refused to address that aspect of himself or speak about his personal life hmm. interviews at the time. And maybe he's even still this way, but he's very much like, it's about the art and I won't take something for the money and blah, blah, blah. Because again, he's in the news for taking 5 million for it, etc. So people, they do the polling and it's like, people already don't like him as a person. And then hmm. here he is a nobody in the season of big hunks with lots of muscles right. being action stars, so I'll post well, a dedicated on sequels that right. have like a built-in audience. <laughs> right, so I'll post a link because the first posters that came out for this do not include a picture of Bruce Willis, which is insane. It just has a picture of Nakatomi Plaza, like the the the, uh, really? the building. Yeah, oh <laughs> it's a gosh. yeah the full-page newspaper ad that first came out. Just has the building
0: as the star, <laughs> the star of Die Hard, <laughs> the building. I mean, it makes sense because I mean, mm-hmm. being in, you know, being a TV coming up to in you don't know if you want to hinge the whole thing on him or not, but it's almost, gosh, we're really, I mean, that really shows you kind of a step forward as that would be bananas now. Right. Um. <laughs> yeah. I'll put, I'll, like That's I said, I'll really post a link to it. to it. That's amazing. And then in terms of what happened,
1: it never claimed the number one ranking. It spent 10 weeks in the top five. Oh my gosh. Um so it did earn a bunch of money. It earned 140 million on a $25 million budget. Oh, so that's huge. I mean yeah. the people saw it and liked it. So yeah. here's the the influence and why then that came to be if it looks like, oh, this isn't going to be anything special. Thematically, we've already touched on it, but it's the redemption through violence, and it's it typifies a blue-collar, sort of almost Western cowboy star, which hadn't really been. Placed in the same way that this film does it.
0: I saw it. I mean, this is a bit of a stretch, but I saw this character, John McClane, is really a kind of exorcism of the ego. He starts fully clothed, and inch by inch, he's taking the clothes. Before anything's happening, he's starting to re- he's revealing himself piece by piece, and mm-hmm. he's letting his guard down inch by inch. And then stuff starts to happen, and then he starts using everything around him to to get by, and he starts being resourceful. But he's th- and then he's still losing clothes, and by the end of this, he looks like he's in Predator, covered in mud, basically. You know, like mm-hmm. I mean, I think I'm really there with him. As we inch into Mm -hmm. what we can now kind of label as just huge action hero franchise state character. Right. But this is really walking you there and showing you how that might happen. And you know, over right. the course of a couple hours to somebody who's just really wants his marriage to work. Well, and that's what really
1: created what we see as the action genre flip is because it revitalized it. Like we see Rambo three is coming out this year. <laughs> it was due to the fact that, like you said, he is vulnerable, fallible. He's yes. not muscle bound, invincible, ran yes. counter to what everybody saw. He's a normal person, reasonable, average physique, failing personally and professionally.
0: And he has to let all that go. Right. he has to really let it all fly off mm-hmm. and, and, and really boil it down to himself and escape the situation and get done what he needs to get done and get to his wife and get to his kids. Yeah. I mean it re- I and mean, it really is that, but I think I think it's so artfully done piece by piece. And even uh, with
1: um the tropes of the 80s films that this is following the one-liners by these big hunk action heroes with John McClane it's through his Sort of nervous reaction to the situation, exactly. not that he's dominating the situation. Exactly, exactly. People, That's what I was trying and, to yeah.
0: say. It better, I was. You said it so much better than I did because it reminded us of when the Yippie Ki moment <laughs> comes up. It, yeah, it, that that I know that line, and I've I, and it's been done and done and redone, and it's a classic line. I had never seen the moment before the initial moment, and that line in particular is delivered in its context with such credibility, it flies off the. Do- it is so real. It is not a zinger. It is not a moment. (laughs) Uh, It just is because it is that real uh and, and it and it stuck and it's beautiful. We were both gobsmacked <laughs> watching it, going like, no way that's how they pull off that line because it just rolls off the tongue. It's exactly like you say, it's his nervous, uh doesn't know what to, and he's just <laughs> kind of rolling with it by now because whatever, he's jumped off a building by the you know, like yeah. Uh, I, I I think that's that really is the mark of how good this movie is because any other lesser director, any other lesser actor, anybody, anybody, any weak link in this, that that moment gets flubbed and cheapened. Mm-hmm. So now we see there's
1: tons of copycats after, and even in the world of film, it became a thing that you would use to pitch, so it would be like Die Hard on a blank, which just implied a lone hero fighting overwhelming odds. Yes, so just yes, in the next yeah. you know, five to ten years, Under Siege is Die Hard on a battleship, Air Force One on a plane, cliffhanger on a mountain, speed on a bus, on <laughs> yeah. air, not just a plane, but a prison plane. So all of these things come from that. And Bruce Willis had even said somebody had pitched him Die Hard on a, in a skyscraper. And he was like, I think we've done that one already.
0: <laughs> People uh, uh, where that trope yeah, even came it. from.
1: It. <laughs> um, and like you said about the uh, the iconography of the clothing and the layering of him, the undershirt from Die Hard that he wears is at the American History Museum in the Smithsonian. Because that blood and sweat is iconic as far as like being opposite of action heroes, seeing yes, yes, um, yes. and yes. what's what's so interesting to me, rounding it out, the irony is as it becomes Die Hard two through five, he oh. becomes closer and closer to the eighties action films that it was renouncing in the first place, and McLean becomes this invincible killing machine by oh. <laughs> by Die Hard five. I
0: don't think I've seen any of them to be quite honest, and and it and this is why we did this because. They're just the quintessential action movie, high stakes in an office building. How are we going to get out terrorists or, you know, pre (laughs) 9-11 kind of stuff is kind of how I see it. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think there's so much more here than general audiences who aren't acquainted with it would ever know. It's hard to really say that in a way that makes sense, but I mean, at the end of the day, it was uh, nominated for four Academy Awards, so I which mean, got it, beat out all by Roger Rabbit. Which comes, hey, check <laughs> out our episode on Roger Rabbit.
1: <laughs> yeah, this definitely, it, whatever you think about it, as far as the Christmas setting, at least you could say John McClane is trying to uphold tradition and society and keeping families together on Christmas. That's the whole. If you <laughs> yeah. if you don't like the action side of it at least he's trying to do that which is the the hope of all Christmas movies is that people come together on
0: Christmas that's that's it that's the movie and I think that's such a beautiful thing to make a movie about to make this type of movie about and, and look how classic how amazing thank you Taylor yeah thank you this is amazing uh, I hope your holidays everybody are, are really wonderful thank you for spending the year with us we really really appreciate it check us out on instagram at illiteratepod. let us know what you're watching over these holidays let us know what you're reading let us know what's coming out you never know when we're going to do an episode about it it doesn't have to be the newest stuff look at this this came out in 1988 i learned a ton uh, i hope you guys did too thank you so much all right catch y'all next week